0: Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon uh, in the great state of Victoria, uh, and uh, joining me on the line uh, from various parts of uh, Victoria um, is the first time actually on the show, uh, Peter Francis, who's a partner at FAL Lawyers and one of Australia's uh, preeminent lawyers on technological commercialisation. Peter, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be here. Uh, And uh, not the first time she has been uh, on Socially Democratic, and indeed the last time she was on this show, she was actually hosting an episode of Socially Democratic. Uh, Laura Thompson from Clothing the Gap, welcome back to Socially Democratic.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, uh, Laura, the last time you were on the show, uh, you and Uncle Mukai... uh, um, ran the podcast, uh, for, for the week. Um, and you covered a whole bunch of important and, um, interesting topics relating to Aboriginal Victorians. Uh, one of them that you just sort of skimmed the surface of was the free, the flag issue. And whilst I was listening to that episode, um, and I didn't want to stick my nose into it. I actually was, I was, I was like, I oh, talk more about that. I find it absolutely fascinating about this campaign that's been going on. And I, I, thought to myself that's okay we can come back and talk about that uh one day but it has sort of become a big issue in the mainstream media most Mm -hmm. recently so here's an i thought this was a great opportunity to get you back on the show again to talk a talk a bit about uh the aboriginal flag and the the uh the 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 argument that's going on at the moment about who has the rights to the flag both in a public and a commercial sense my first question to you is, for those of you that haven't been paying attention to this issue, just give us a bit of a history of the Aboriginal flag who designed it um, and how did it come to be uh, in the hand? Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon uh, in the great state of Victoria uh, and uh, joining me on the line uh, from various parts of... Uh, Victoria is uh, first time actually on the show. Uh, Peter Francis, who's a partner at FAL Lawyers and one of Australia's uh, preeminent lawyers on technological commercialisation. Uh, Peter, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you for to be here. Uh, and uh, not the first time she has been uh, on Socially Democratic. And indeed, the last time she was on this show, she was actually hosting an episode of Socially Democratic. Uh, Laura Thompson from Clothing the Gap, welcome back to Socially Democratic.
1: Thanks for having me. Now, uh,
0: Laura, the last time you were on the show, uh, you and Uncle Mukai uh, um, ran the podcast uh, for, for the week. Um, and you covered a whole bunch of important and um, interesting topics relating to Aboriginal Victorians. Uh, one of them that you just sort of skimmed the surface of was the free the flag issue. And whilst I was listening to that episode, um, and I didn't want to stick my nose into it, I actually was—I was—I was like, going, talk more about that. I find it absolutely fascinating about this campaign that's been going on. And I thought to myself, that's okay. We can come back and talk about that uh, one day. But it has sort of become a Big issue in the mainstream media most Mm -hmm. recently. I thought this was a great opportunity to get you back on the show again to talk a a bit about the Aboriginal flag and the argument that's going on at the moment about who has the rights to the flag, both in a public and a commercial sense. My first question to you is, for those of you that haven't been paying attention to this issue, just give us a bit of a history of the Aboriginal flag, who designed it um, and had it come to be in the hands of, or certainly the licences of a commercial clothing company.
1: Yeah, so in 1971, um, Harold Thomas designed the Aboriginal flag, Um, other people, um, you know, that's contentious in itself because there's lots of, you know, community and groundswell support that, you know, perhaps it was George Brown that designed it, another Aboriginal man. Um, In 1995, it was proclaimed as an official flag of Australia, just not long after Cathy Freeman. Um, ran with the first flags in the 400 medias run in the Commonwealth Games. And then in 1997 there was a federal court case where George Brown formally challenged um, Harold Thomas authorship and um, Harold Thomas was award- awarded the copyright. And not long after he got the official uh, copyright from the federal uh, court case, he began to license you know his, the Aboriginal flag out to different companies to manage so he could make royalties and money from it.
0: What was the inspiration? Uh, Why do you think that Harold Thomas did uh, decide to give a licence to? I mean, one of the organisations is Wham. Uh, Who is Wham, apart from Uh, a a really cool 80s band uh, with George Michael in it?
1: I guess the first licence holder that um, Harold ever gave was to Carolyn Richardson and Flagworld, and they've had their licence for over 20 years, so... You know, every time you buy a flag for your school or to put on a flag post, they're making a licensing fee and Harold's making a cut. Um, wham clothing is a real, really unusual. I don't quite know why Harold chose Wham. I think that's a question for Harold, but um they've had the license since 2018 and certainly since they've had that license. They've been quite aggressive in terms of how they approach everyone who's using the flag basically and said, well, you know, you have to pay 20%. We call it the flag tax. If you want to, you know, as a, you know, when we use the flag, it's a display of our pride and connection and our, of our Aboriginality um, and the fact that we have to pay for it and, you know, and ask permission to use it, has um, certainly what's you know, motivated us to fight to free the flag
0: um what i find interesting here is and maybe uh peter you might want to jump in here on that as well is that in this journey of since the creation of the uh the aboriginal f- flag why hasn't the federal government at any point sort of stepped in and sought to acquire either the license or some sort of proprietary over that flag uh and how does it for some context how does it differ with the arrangements that exist for, say, the Australian national flag—the red, you know, the red, white, and blue Union Jack and Southern Cross flag—sure.
2: Um, perhaps I'll have a go first if I could. I think the, the simple answer is they didn't think about it. I don't know that the copyright issues were being considered at the time when the flag was appointed by proclamation as a flag of Australia. And as Laura's pointed out, the copyright issues really only came to the fore and were resolved two years later. So I really, and again, speculation, I really think that the copyright challenges um, that abound when you adopt a copyright work, which is a piece of private property as a public instrument, they weren't around. They're certainly around now, and the government, some, you know, Decades later, is having to grapple with them, but I really believe that they were not considered at the time. Laura, well, you run your own business. One
0: good opportunity to give it a plug here. Uh, two, how has this actually directly impacted on your ability to, um, to you know, to run a business and uh, use, an, you know, the, the, the Aboriginal flag, such an important cultural emblem for your community.
1: Um, so the business is closing the gap and, um, our tagline is uniting people through fashion and a cause. And. It was 12 months ago. Um, we decided to sell some, uh, products with the Aboriginal flag on them and we would slightly adjusted them. They were a variation of the Aboriginal flag, but nevertheless, we received a cease and desist and we had three days to stop selling the products or we risked further um, legal action. It was then that I met Peter and Peter's been with us on this journey um, 12 months later. Um, how it's affected our business? Well, our taglines never ran so true as it has right now. And, you know, when we've seen in the AFL, when they jumped on board and supported their campaign, there's this iconic moment, I think, in the Free the Flag campaign where Eddie Betts puts on the Free the Flag shirt after the game and he points to his T-shirt that says Free the Flag. And, you know, I reflect on that moment and I think about my business and I think about that T-shirt and we think, how does fashion drive social change? How does brands create movements and the power of brands when, when we're able to influence government? When we're completely independent of government, we actually become a very powerful force. So um, this isn't a sob story of how Clothing the Gap couldn't sell this and Clothing the Gap couldn't do that. This is a story of the power of fashion enabled to change social outcomes and you know that's one of the things that you know after all this is done that we can really start to reflect on i guess you know honestly the power of fashion and when we don't want to talk and when we're too tired to talk our t-shirts or our messaging on our shirts can talk for us
0: what's the genesis of becoming an issue with the afl this year i mean the obviously we we're leading into the dream time round a, a couple of weeks ago uh and this issue's flared up but the, the dream time around has been going now since 2005. i i, I you know I've been to the footy on a number of occasions where the aboriginal flag is being used what was the who had the issue what was the issue particular and what sparked this off in in this in 2020 <laughs> of all years to do it as well mind you
1: well you know it's been reported um by the afl themselves that you know they when we received our cease and desist at cleaning the gap Um, So did the AFL and the NRL, but none of them spoke out publicly about it. And I was really actually surprised by that because here we are a tiny little black business and we've got the biggest voice on the issue and, you know, you've got all this capacity um, and all these legals and people, but you're really quiet about it. And um, during the journey, we started to find out that one of the reasons why they've been so tight-lipped about this issue is because... Um, WAM actually wants to collect money off them for retrospective use of the flag on the Indigenous Rounds, I think for like up for the last 10 years. Um, So leading into Indigenous Round, I suspected that there would be an absence of the flag um, from the game, and that's what we saw. And what I wanted to make sure happened was that if the flag was going to be missing, that the community knew why, And the flag just doesn't become invisible from the landscape. So when the flag's not there, we're talking about the Aboriginal flag copyright versus, you know, Aboriginal people are just become, start to disappear from, and the Aboriginal flag starts to disappear from communities, which is actually what we're seeing across a whole range of sports um, and and workplaces.
0: The the cease and desist uh, letters that you're getting from them, how specific are they in terms of, is it the colours? Is it just the flag in particular? Uh, what are we talking here? Peter, you may may, may want to grab that one.
2: Well, they are cease and desist letters that go to the reproduction of the flag itself. So they don't particularise any aspect of the flag. It's just the flag. Now the copyright is over the, entire, uh, the entirety that, that is the flag. So they don't particularise any element of it. They just say stop using the... Well, they say a couple of things. They claim that to be the exclusive licensees of the flag for use that uh, covers your use, you being the recipient of the letter. Um, if you want to continue using the flag, you need permission from us. And we suggest the time be of the essence and you contact us without delay. Um, that's effectively what the letters say. Right. So stop using the flag you're using it. Um, We're open, however, to your continued use, provided you enter into a commercial arrangement with us. It is, in that respect, a fairly standard cease and desist letter that a copyright owner might, or licensee, might send to an infringer. Uh,
0: A spokesperson for the Federal Minister for uh, Indigenous Affairs, uh, Minister uh, Wyatt, a uh, spokesperson from his office, had said during the week that any suggestions that the flag can't be fr- flown freely are misleading. Oh, sorry. It says, actually, I'll, I'll read the full quote. I don't want to take it out of context. Um, the Aboriginal uh, flag can continue to be flown freely as per the intention of copyright holders. Um, Mr. Thomas, any suggestions that the flag can't be flown freely are misleading. Um, I'm sure they're being very clever or specific with the, la- the language that they've used in that in that statement.
2: Yeah, if I could take a couple the of points there. Um, the people issuing the cease and desist letters are not the people who own what I'll call, just for the purposes of this chat, um, the flag copyright. But the flag that you see hanging from the flagpoles, the copyright or well, the right to use the flag as a flag from hanging from a flagpole, that belongs to a company mentioned earlier by Laura uh, Carroll and Richardson or Flags World, Flags Australia. Now, if you want to go and buy a flag from a flag seller that's issued by Carroll and Richardson and fly it on your flagpole, you can. And that's not been the centre point of our discussion or our concerns, although it's been part of it. If I could, I'll come back to that. The people who are issuing the cease and desist letters that have led to the Free the Flag campaign are Wham, not Carolyn Richardson, are Wham. And we're not... We haven't uh, reacted to the flagpole licence, specifically, in front of centre. We've reacted to the cease and desist letters that have been sent to Aboriginal health organisations such as Laura's and many others. And the people who are looking to stop the AFL or regulate the AFL's use of the flag on the ground, again, a wham. It's not Carolyn Richardson. It's important to know who's doing what in this scenario. Now, as to the flag um, pole licence, it's still a fact that unlike the Australian flag that is the Royal Ensign, there is an extra charge payable if you want to buy an Aboriginal flag, a flag that reflects the cost to the flagpole licensee of the license. So it costs more uh, to buy an Indigenous, sorry, the Aboriginal flag, because it carries a copyright royalty. And again, we think that that issue needs to be addressed by the government. And it will be if, the current negotiations that are reported in the press succeed as they are reported. Mm. That, that uh, clarifies it, that the different, if you like, licensees. It's not just one, and it's not just one particular use of the flag. It's spread across a whole range of media and surfaces um, and identities.
0: Just say Laura wanted to. Uh, her company wanted to produce uh, a large batch of, um, uh what's, you know, um, sporting apparel that had both the yeah. Australian national flag or the blue ensign on it and the Aboriginal flag. Where what mm. differs with Laura's ability to put the Australian flag on the, that apparel and then the compared yeah. to the Aboriginal flag?
2: Okay, well, what's in common? to answer your question obliquely, what's in common is each is a flag of Australia and each is controlled by the Flags Act. And that regulates things like denigration denigration of the image and the like. Where they differ is that one is the subject of copyright and one is not. You probably know Stuart, copyright lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years. And the... I don't know whether it's the royal ensign or the blue ensign, but, you know, the so-called Australian flag um, in this debate is not the subject of copyright. Whoever created that has died a long, long time ago, whereas the Aboriginal flag is subject to copyright. So Laura would need permission from the copyright owner or their licensee, in this instance, Lamb clothing, in order to put uh, reproduce the flag on that T-shirt
0: campaign question for you here Laura because you have been campaigning on this for quite some time um, and you alluded to uh, Eddie Betts wearing a t-shirt the other week after after the game how just talk us through I'm always interested in sort of the campaign side of things how have you elevated this issue most recently how have you taken advantage of this you know this sort of it becoming a bit more contemporary in the wider?
1: Um, I think like essentially we're health promotion people. So we've always been good at messaging. I think free the flag resonated with people, you know, with that, um, even as a hashtag, it was trending. I think people, you know, uh, with the AFL, I think we're able to get all the teams on board within three days. Um, that was following, yeah, Collingwood's lead 12 months ago. Collingwood said that, um, Collingwood football club said that we want to be known as contemporary Collingwood. We want, we've already happy to be political we've shown that we can be we supported uh gay marriage equality when the other clubs didn't we're happy to to take a stand and i thought back then and Pete can you know um you know talk to that i i actually said to him look if collingwood does it then that's going to be enough for the public to know why the flag was missing and i had a collingwood ringtone for six months celebrating and then COVID (laughs) hit, and i thought oh no i've lost this opportunity to bring national attention to the issue. Collingwood said, look, Indigenous round still going to happen. We still want to run with this. It might not be in the big way we had planned. I said, well, how do you feel about me approaching the other clubs? They said, give it a go. Three days out, I had reconnected with clubs. They jumped on board and that was essentially player led. Players said, we might not understand the recognised campaign. We're confused about treaty, but we understand the power of flags. We understand that the flag's missing from the ground, and we want our club to show support. And essentially, um, we've done an interesting campaign tactic where we created a "Free the Flag" AFL club leadership board. And essentially, 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 as the clubs jumped on board, we announced them on Twitter. The Hawks come flying in, you know, in jump the kangaroos, and mm-hmm. um, it really called on the football players' like sense of competitiveness. And all the teams started tagging each other, and the players wanted to their club not to be the last team on this leadership board. Um, I'm not quite sure how we created it, but it worked. And in three days, like, every single team wanted to be on it. And with, that was not um, us forcing teams. It was, you know, I like to call it, Stephen, it was truly community control. The community controlled that. They put the pressure on their clubs to say, This is an important issue and we want our club to be part of this. And what we saw was 18 clubs stand together in unity and solidarity on an issue that wasn't government funded, that wasn't, that was led by essentially a brand that, that cared and had some personal involvement in freeing the flag for everyone to use. And it was, I guess it was that moment, um, in, I guess our campaign journey, um, that really got the attention of the nation that, got us to the point now where the pollies are really you know battling it out in parliament as we speak i
0: mm. oh, will ask you a, a question a couple of questions in a moment about the, the the political aspect of it in in our in our nation's capital um but uh we saw just recently um in the united states particularly around uh nba players after um uh, jacob uh, blake was shot seven times in the back um, in um, um, in. A, was it a, Wisconsin, uh, that NBA players who were entering into the playoff phase of the season uh, refused to take the court um, and then spoke to their owners and to the NBA and said, look, we're not going back out there until we see some change. Um, And one of the specific changes that they put to NBA ownership was to making their stadiums available for uh, people people of colour in the United States to go and vote in November, which is directly related to bringing about change in relation to policing in, in the United States and witnessing the power of high-profile athletes, you know, mixing it in, with the, in within the political debate. Where is the next step do you see for these players? So they've, they've made a great statement and it's now got national coverage. Um, is, are you having conversations with, with key players within the AFL and in the NRL as well? to start to really apply more pressure. How are you applying that pressure to make some change to um, this, um, this issue with the flag?
1: I think that's a great question. I mean, certainly Eddie Betts for us, he had his own experience of not being able to use the flag on his storybook or he eventually got permission, but it did take him a number of months. So he had his own personal struggle with the Aboriginal flag copyright. So we've had him in our corner all along and I think um, he'll continue to speak publicly about it. Um, There's Darcy Moore at Collingwood will continue to, is an ambassador on the campaign. I guess, I feel like, the clubs, some of the clubs in Kilda, are continuing to train, warm up in their free the free the flag shirts. But what I guess as a campaign, we're looking to what are some of the other sports that might want to jump on board and support the campaign, especially the um, the teams who have not chosen to use the Aboriginal flag. I think they they've got an obligation, as mode I believe, to tell their supporters of their sports why the Aboriginal flag's missing. I feel like that's the minimum, um, whether or not they publicly come out and support a free the flag campaign or not. People deserve to know why it's not there. Um, yeah, I guess that's where we're going. I The other thing is, Stephen, like this is a campaign of ours, but we run a business and we run community programs. So this is a tiny bit of what we do. And I'd like to say that we had a, you know, a big you know, flash campaign strategy, but we don't. Um, and we're, we go where we feel like we're going to get the most energy and momentum with just what's happening naturally around us.
0: And for, uh, fair enough too. Um, the uh, Let's turn to uh, Canberra, shall we? Um, the shadow spokesperson for Indigenous Australians, uh, Linda Burney, um, who's also the first Aboriginal woman to be elected to the House of Reps, is in the process of drafting a private member's bill designed to free the flag. Um, a... Li- uh, Laura, what's your understanding of what is uh, going into that, that bill? Are you, are you across, um, are you, have, you had any, have you or any of your colleagues had any kind of involvement talking with uh, the MPs in terms of drafting that private members bill?
1: Look, I will say one thing, um, 12 months ago, you know, myself and Peter, we met with Linda along with Nova Paris and Michael Conley and other campaign people. I think that action 12 months ago has really put us in a really lovely place to be able to reconnect with those politicians now and be able to feed into them. Like I have spoken with um, Linda uh, Bernie's office and been able to provide her with some insights, like what we would like to see as a result of the campaign and share some of Peter's legal advice with her too. I I don't think anyone's um, seen what's inside that privates members bill yet. Like, I certainly haven't. Yeah. Have you got anything on that, Peter?
2: No, just as you say, Laura, we've provided information background, um, some legal Q&A. We've met with Linda um, and her staff, and she's very much across... Um, the issues and how we would see them resolved. Uh, I'm guessing that the bill's all directed towards a compulsory acquisition, but we've, neither of us has seen it, but all of us will in due course. Peter, what is the legal um, solution here? Well, there's there's a couple of ways it, it could happen. Um, and one is by agreement. And, and according to the press, Stuart, as you may have seen, uh, Minister Wyatt says that he's um, in delicate negotiations with Mr Thomas and Mr Thomas' licensees and that would be an agreement whereby, and again this is speculation because the details of what the discussions are about haven't been released they've just talked in the broad of being in uh, negotiations around the issue um, I think it's sensible to suggest that what's on the table in those negotiations is the Commonwealth buying certain rights to the flag, if not the copyright, then other rights to the flag, which would be directed at removing all barriers to um, people wanting to use the flag in any way, as long as it's flag use. Um, so that's one way, an agreement. And in an agreement of this kind, you are effectively got a seller and a buyer. The buyer is the Commonwealth, the seller is Mr Thomas and his licensees, and in the middle is a price. And we'd like to say a few words about the price through this discussion. Um, the price would be paid by the Commonwealth uh, across the table to Mr Thomas and his licensees, and the Commonwealth would then take those rights. It may be the whole of the copyright. It might be to certain uses of the, co- of, of the work. It would, I think, at the minimum, buy out the licensees, the existing licensees. So that's one way by agreement. And the other way um, is by compulsory acquisition. Under the constitution, Commonwealth has got the power to acquire the private property of its citizens um, subject to the payment of fair compensation. Now again Mr White, Mr White has eschewed the idea of compulsory acquisition, he says it's a, a, a bad precedent to assess, to, to, to um, you know, start acquiring intellectual property rights of citizens. Now, we'd say with respect to the minister, this is no ordinary piece of intellectual property. So far as we know, there's not a, there's not a single other flag on earth that is um, privately controlled the way this flag is privately controlled. There is, however, a precedent for a copyright flag, and it's in Australia. The Torres Strait Islander flag um, has copyright attached to it, and its use requires recognition of its creator, but that is controlled by a bespoke entity that's got the right objects, it's got the right corporate structure, and it's got the right people, as opposed to the clothing company with a copyright control over use of the flag. Now, that's just to state the obvious. So, we disagree that compulsory acquisition is inappropriate. What's appropriate is the flag be freed and we should be focusing on the outcome, not the journey. And if agreement works, great. And if it gets the right result, great again. But if it doesn't work, the issue can't stop there. The government needs to go the next step and make the compulsory acquisition. It's got the power to do so. It's got the power to make this thing stop. And in a sense, the government... or Australia uh, created this issue in that it, it proclaimed as a flag of this nation a privately owned copyright work. Now that's the essence of our problem and people who created the problem need now to fix it.
1: I think um, in this discussion, you know, Peter and I have spoken about it, that flags are the country's most public assets yet, you know, our or my flags privately owned and that I'm expected to um, pledge my allegiance to my privately owned flag of Harold Thomas. Um, It's just observed and, uh, you know, it needs to change. I read an article today though, that talks about perhaps um, legislation, looking at the copyright law itself um, and how the copyright law is inadequate in terms of how um, it doesn't protect, people can privately own cultural symbols or icons. Um, And I think the eternity to this debate is um, people will say, well, you know, we are taking um, Harold Thomas's uh, artwork away and what does this mean for all other artists if we're able to take, you know, essentially what's their art? But we will argue that art and flags are very different and they shouldn't be approached the same way. There's been some interesting
2: numbers thrown around in the press about what the value of this flag might be, and someone's made a comparison between the boxing kangaroo flag that was acquired, I think, by the Australian Olympic Committee and what they paid for it. Whatever the value of this artwork is, this flag is, there seems to us there's two values. There's the value that this artwork would have had if it had just remained a picture, I can put it that way, hanging on a wall somewhere. That's one value. And you can get art curators and experts, Sotheby's and the like, that could come in and and tell you what any piece of art's worth. And then there's the, the value of the artwork as a national flag. And how did that value get created? This wasn't a flag's competition. This image came forward as a flag as part of a movement of which Harold Thomas was part. And we say that there is an implied licence on any Australian with a legitimate use, wanting to use that flag as a flag. There's an entitlement to do that. Equally, we say that if you're part of a movement and you create a flag at the behest of and for the benefit of that movement, then whilst you might own the copyright, because that's how our law works, you hold that copyright, if you like, on trust for the benefit of the people who wish to use the artwork as a flag. And that's all Australians and international people as well. Um, So the value has been created by the adoption of the flag, first by Indigenous Australians, but then by all Australians. And so that needs, I think, to be taken into account um, when determining how much to pay Harold Thomas and his licensees for this flag become free of its copyright restrictions.
1: Yeah, I think that I agree. I think the value of the flag is equal to the pride and passion of the people. Um, and it was today I was reflecting on the flag was thinking there's so much um, hurt and upset at the moment. People are saying, well, I want a new flag up. Uh, you know, this flag doesn't represent me. I don't think of it the same way. And if the people don't value the flag, then it's not a flag anymore it's a rag that's how quickly the value can be lost it's not harold's harold didn't create the value in the flag the people did and if the people don't believe in that symbol anymore then essentially the flag's worthless and the longer this debate goes on the flag's turning more into a rag and we don't want that we don't want to lose that cultural icon. we're fighting for to free it because it means so much to us the risk is if this goes on no matter what changes, how dirty this flight ends up being and um, people are going to lose, the flag's ultimately going to lose value. So, you know, really pushing the government to make a decision sooner rather than later and the flag's turning 50 in July, and that's a, a special moment where, you know, I really feel like if the flag's not free by then, the community is going to give up on that as a symbol that represented them. And then I've even heard stories of people tr- getting their tattoos um, lays it off at the moment because they've said that they will never feel the same way about it because it, it now they see the flag and they see greed uh, mm.
0: the um, uh, in my mind I was trying to think about from a from a traditional sort of you know, grassroots sort of community organizing campaign where the the constituency where as where the people have leverage in terms of their resources over The actors that you're seeking to bring about change, you know, you just you've you've hit the nail on the head right there, Laura. Like the 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 risk for um, WHAM is that it does lose legitimate value, a financial value, if the people deem it to be well, okay, we can look, we can just create another flag, we can create another identity that, that that defines who we are as a people, and that's something that they probably need to weigh up. Both from a you know from a strategic campaign sense, but also from a business sense as well. Like you know, as like, as you're saying, like people are going to get their tattoos removed. If people are going to move to something else. Um, they better move quickly, and that's something you definitely have in your in your in your in your back pocket or even your front pocket.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, anything it's else? It's, to like, add? it's the reverse, image, isn't it? Sorry, so it, it's the reverse image. The the flag's been created by its adoption. As soon as it's de-adopted, if that's the word. The value goes. It becomes a piece of cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Is... And
1: I yeah, and I feel like the government when they proclaimed it as a flag, they increased the value of it um, as a official flag. And I mean, there's there's so much in who created the value, should Harold be paid for it? How, how should she be how should he be compensated for it? And you know. Um, Peter and I have tossed this around too. If we see it as a piece of copyrighted art, what is the most expensive piece of Aboriginal art that's ever been sold in this country and would essentially two rectangles and a circle be worth more than that? Um, How do you put a price on a national symbol? And should we, and I guess at the crux of the free the flag debate is um, at the core is no national flag should ever be copyrighted?
0: Yeah, that's the yeah. bit I just don't get. Yeah, how do you put a price? How do you put a price, a figure on national identity or mm. or any form of identity? And also, looking, I mean, partly why I was interested in this this debate when I first heard about it uh, last year, because I was shocked when someone told me I was doing some work with the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission folks, and I saw that someone had a free the flag T-shirt, and I said, "What's that all about?" They explained it to me. I was stunned to mm. to learn this. Um, and partly because of um, massive admission, I'm a bit of a flag nerd as well. Ever since I was a young kid, I've collected flags. I remember the very first Aboriginal flag I bought on a Central Australia trip in 1992. Still have that flag. Um, And, uh, um, you know, peoples, constituencies, communities, they can change flags. You know, uh, my own ancestry is Irish. The, The flag that flew on top of the, um, the GPO in Dublin in 1916 when they declared an Irish, an Irish Republic was not the flag that we know the Irish Republic to be today. It was a green flag with a, with a gold harp. But eventually they decided to come with green, white, and orange because it identified the unity of the island. So things can change. And I think that Wham or whoever else is involved in this dogfight needs to start to realise that, it's as you said, Laura, and as you said, Peter, it's the people's flag. And they will mm-hmm. determine what, how, how you identify from a, from a piece of cloth.
2: Yeah, and, you know, one's thought to ponder things like, would we be happy to pay a royalty every time we sang the national anthem? Would we tolerate schools not being able to sing the national anthem or show the coat of arms because the copyright owner of that material said no? We'd find it ridiculous and it wouldn't be tolerated and it would have stopped by now. Yeah, it's... um. The
0: hypocrisy and the double standards is um, is um, pretty outrageous. Final thoughts, uh, Laura, just uh, talk us through the next steps with the campaign and, in particular, people listening to today's episode. How can they lend support? How can they get involved? What, what do you want folks to do here? Yeah, I
1: guess um, my final point is that the we want to see more black flags in the world, not less. When you talk to people about cultural safety and cultural awareness, one of the first things I'll say is put the flags up, that that creates a sense of safety and belonging. So um, at the, um, you know, the Aboriginal flag is so important in terms of um, Aboriginal people feeling like they belong to this country and the Australian flag doesn't represent us. And without an Aboriginal flag um, representing us as well, as a people, what is our uniting symbol? Um, So if you feel like this is something you want to support, people can jump on board um, the Clothing the Gap website and we've got pages of information and documents and uh, history of the timeline um, as well. 140,000 people have already signed our Petition Pride Not Profit and hundreds and hundreds of people have written to the MPs and we've got a template letter that you can use. Um, There's also... Um, we encourage people to have these conversations in your own circles if you need a conversation starter we have really cute merch um, and t-shirts and you know stickers and stuff like that um, that support us to continue to campaign uh, for social change and to free the flag and um, yeah I'm just hoping that you know we're able to see flags back in communities again and you know the AFL was affected by the use, but I've got stories of, you know, um, one of my aunties, Rio, not being able to afford to put the flag on her, you know, community grassroots carnival team. So I think we need to think about this as affecting, yes, the national sporting community, but this is affecting local level people. There's no one that's not, not impacted by the Aboriginal flag copyright.
0: Is there a website that uh, people can go yeah. to?
1: Including the Gap.
0: Sorry, Han, I spoke over the top of you, so your audio didn't come through. Just want to say that one more time?
1: Clothing the gap.
0: Clothing the gap. Fantastic. Uh, Laura, lovely to see you again. Thanks very much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to come on today to talk about this really, really important issue. And uh, also to uh, you, Peter Francis, thank you very much for your uh, legal insights into what is a reasonably complicated um, issue from a legal standpoint, but from a moral standpoint, quite simple, really.
2: Just give the flag back to the people. Summed up beautifully. Thanks, dude Thank you. Thank you